Check Me Out is a production of Panhandle PBS and Amarillo College's FM90. Partners include the Amarillo Public Library, the Harrington Library Consortium, and Amarillo College, with the support from the Anne Ray Foundation and Barnes & Noble Booksellers. I am coming out as a boring book lover. I love boring books. A lot of the best stuff in the world is boring. <laughs> what? If you want to know the innards of a whale, that's your book. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. Welcome to Check Me Out, a podcast for book lovers. I'm Hillary Holsey, and today we are going to be talking about books that are loosely defined as cult, and uh, we, it's appropriately titled Drink the Kool-Aid. And so I'm going to go around and introduce, well, I'll let them introduce themselves. Oh, okay. It's Hi. you. Uh, introduce yourself. I'm Jonathan Baker. I uh, have a master's degree in American literature from the University of Chicago and an undergrad degree in English from West Texas A&M University. I am the former assistant to the editor-in-chief at W.W. W. Norton and Company in New York City, and I've written four novels, and I've worked at the Strand Bookstore in New York and the Toshin Bookstore in New York, and I'm a former book manager at Hastings. I'm a book guy, is what I'm saying. Essentially, you're qualified. I've done a lot qualified. of booky things. <laughs> Hi, my name's Chris Hudson. I have a PhD in American literature from University of Texas in Austin, and a master's in Latin American literature from the same place. I was a professor at St. Mary of the Woods College in Indiana. It's a little liberal arts school there for 15 years. And uh, last year, actually, academic year before that, I was at WT. Wow. So no doubt about it, you guys probably have some opinions about books and uh, know a little bit about it. PhD, master's. Okay. So what this is, is we are talking about cult books that are particularly on the Great American Read list. Currently, PBS is doing a nationwide televised competition between 100 books, and they want to know what is the most beloved book. We use this as a, a framework for you know, just getting a discussion about books in general started in, in our community. And so we want you guys to talk about cult. So maybe the way that we start this out, because I think cult in books and in movies and in general is a very difficult thing to classify. Uh, I know from my experience with film, it has a lot to do with its following. Um, but how, how would you guys define cult, particularly in literature? Well... I can tell you how Webster defines it, okay. uh, which is a great devotion to a person, idea, object, or movement regarded, such devotion regarded as a literary or intellectual fad, the object of such devotion. I think that when you say something is a cult book, it means that it defines some smaller subset of the larger group, or that that group uses that book to define themselves and define some common sort of uh, link between themselves that... That defines them against the masses. That's what I think. What about you? Well, I think um, that there's there's sort of two sides to it because on one on one hand you want to say I and and I think followers of what they would consider cult fiction want to be sort of out of the mainstream a little bit in in insider baseball as we were saying um, a little bit ago. 
the idea that something can be too popular may take it out of the cult status, but that's not really true with literature because Stephen King certainly, you can say, has a cult following, uh, Anne Rice, uh, uh, people like that. A lot of things, so some of them on this list can be described that way. To a certain extent, you want to th- I wonder how much it intersects with the recent promotion of banned books, uh, which I think there's a, a large... Uh, a crossover with books like that. So I think it depends on how you're looking at it. Are you looking at it the, the way it's written? Are you looking at the content? Are you looking at the following? All kinds of different ways. So I'm assuming that you guys have had a chance to look at the list. And what books on the list would you classify as cult? I went through the list and I called out what I thought could be argued as cult, but then I went back through and thought of some other ones in different ways that I think I missed. But anyway, I'll read this off. 1984, A Confederacy of Dunces, A Prayer for Owen Meany, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Atlas Shrugged, Catch-22, Catcher in the Rye, Crime and Punishment, Dune, the Asimov's Foundation novels, Gone Girl, The Handmaid's Tale, Harry Potter, The Hitchhiker's Guide, Invisible Man, The Little Prince, The Lord of the Rings, Moby Dick, Ready Player One, The Shack, possibly... Siddhartha, The Sirens of Titan, The Stand, Tales of the City, and The Eye of the World. I missed A Game of Thrones, and then Twilight is definitely a cult thing, and and I would say that Fifty Shades of Grey is too. Those are kind of in the Star Wars phenomenon, cult phenomenon, where it's like the most popular thing in the world, and yet is somehow, or Harry Potter is that way too, where it's like, there's a whole generation of people who define themselves in some way by Harry Potter, Yet it is this monolithic cultural and uh, capitalistic phenomenon. So we went through the list and talked about it some, but um, I think you know I think the same. I, I would have before looking at the list, I would have definitely added uh, or put uh, Confederacy of Dunces on there, 1984, Bless Me Ultima, and Catch 22. I think uh, Handmaid's Tale. There's a number that I think don't uh, don't really or probably should have been on there, but I'm not sure if it's the from my understanding of what a cult is or from uh, my understanding of what the list is trying to do. So from the list that you have given us, I think that there are a few that I want to pick out that we have had people come in and talk about different books on the list, but ones that you both pointed out, Confederacy of Dunces. What about mm-hmm. that book makes it cult? Why would you define it as such? I think it's growing in popularity. That might be one thing that's been... Uh, Do you think so? I, I would say so. Hmm. It, it's, I don't know. It's it hard keeps to, coming yeah. out in good editions, yeah. uh, newer in good editions. I don't think it's losing popularity, but it was when I was growing up, 20 years ago, it seems like it was still... There were a lot of young, snarky... Let, let's say what this book is for okay, people yes, who don't know. Okay, yes, please do that, because I don't it's, know. It's a story of Ignatius Riley, who is this overweight loser basically who lives with his mom in new orleans and uh he keeps stumbling into this strip club and he befriends this like black fellow who works there and this guy is the smartest guy in the book i don't know i I don't want to go down a rabbit trail but the the reason people love this book is because it's one of those things that sort of whisks away any kind of facade in front of society and really tries to get at uh, like Catch-22 did for World War II. It's like, it's really poking holes in society, and it's a it's a deeply funny book. It's a very funny book. Funny in the way that Catch-22 is still funny to me. I know there's been some kind of backlash lately over that book. I, I read a thing in 
God, what was it? Like New York Magazine last month that said, you know, Catch-22 was like, uh, had no concept of war, even though Joseph Heller had written the book about his own experiences in World (laughs) War II. But anyway, I think that because these books are written by straight white men, there has been a sort of falling off or a tailing off of, of their popularity given the new modern culture. But we should say that A Confederacy of Dunces was written by this guy, John Kennedy Toole, who committed suicide. He wrote the entire book on Big Chief tablets. His mother took the book to uh, another great author named Walker Percy, who was a a professor, I think, at Tulane. Tulane, And she brought these Big Chief tablets into his office and just kind of flumped them down on Walker's desk. And the guy said, you know, he thought she was crazy. But he, he said that he read the first page and knew he had something there. And the book went on to posthumously win the Pulitzer Prize for John Kennedy Toole, who was, in his way, a lot like Ignatius Riley, the protagonist of his novel, kind of a friendless nerd, you know. So it's a, it's a sad and happy story all at once. And so it has this kind of mythos about it. Anyway, what do you have to say about it? I would say the same thing. There's, I think, part something that's common with cult fiction is that there's there often is a tortured publication history. The author had trouble getting the book published or was posthumous, like Kathy Acker and Blood and Guts mm-hmm. in High School, something like that that took forever to get published. Or, or even Ulysses or, you know. Oh, yeah, the banned book phenomenon right. kind of thing. Yeah. And there's also with the, the content of it, Confederacy of Dunces, there's the, uh, the factor of the sort of the marginalized person who um, is, like you're saying, snarky, that people identify with, and an outsider that by identifying with them, you become the insider, and you you sort of carve out a place for yourself with a lot of uh, books like that. And I think Confederacy of Dunces does that. And it's interesting, I brought up the white male thing, but it's interesting how many of these are about young white males who are outsiders, who think that the world around them is BS in some sense, you know, and so that's what Catcher in the Rye is. My son, who's in the room here with me, just finished reading Catcher in the Rye, and I read it again with him for the fifth time, I think. But that book meant so much to me when I was a kid, and again, there's been a big backlash against that book. In that same article last month that I read, somebody said, completely lacking in literary merit, which is utter nonsense, but I mean, the book is a masterpiece, but people don't get it in some way. A lot of people don't these days. But if you go down this list, you can find Crime and Punishment is about this guy, Raskolnikov, who thinks that he is in some way above society or outside of society, but he thinks he's immune from from moral law. And so he kills this old money lender. Harry Potter is, you know, about a a sort of outsider, young white male who, <laughs> who finds his, you know, other realm or whatever. Moby Dick is about the same thing. Siddhartha is about the same thing. Tales of the City is, all of these stories are about outside groups in some sense, but. What point did you want to make about Catcher in the Rye? I felt like you were going to say something. The school I taught at in Indiana was a women's liberal arts college and Catcher in the Rye was not beloved there. It was something that uh, the, the the women that attended school there didn't want to have anything to do with. And I sort of focused on women's literature uh, world through American when I taught there. And, and when I made a 
sort of alternative list here, I added a lot of women that I think should have been on. Charlotte Gilmore Perkins of The Yellow Wallpaper, but her novel Her Land, which mm-hmm. is kind of a feminist utopia kind of mm-hmm. place. Shirley Jackson, We Have Always Lived in the Castle. Mm-hmm. Sylvia Plath, Bell sure. Jar. Fear uh, Flying. Right. Uh, Le Guin, uh, The Lathe of Heaven, Angela Carter. The Bloody mm-hmm. Chamber, a lot of things yeah. that could be put there that could balance out some of that outsider male sort of perspective. I think. Yeah, and I think that there's been a searching among female readers for a long time to find their own cult literature. And that's what Kathy Acker, for example, is about. Because the point I was trying to make, and I shouldn't have mentioned Tales of the City because that's a different phenomenon. I, I just sort of shifted the narrative to it being about outsider groups but so many of the cult classics throughout history have been about young white males you know going back to the sorrows of young werther or even hamlet you know and that leaves a lot of people out of the narrative that's why wuthering heights for example i think has been popular or jane austen has a cult following and isn't on this list for some reason but there are some strange choices on here why is pilgrim's progress on here and not jane austen you're telling Mm -hmm. me that people Love Pilgrim's Progress more than Jane Austen. I think that there's a phenomenon here of people putting down what they think should be on the list rather than what they actually love. You know, right? It's like War and Peace. We were talking about the the books you should have read. Well, I've read um, War and Peace, and it nearly killed me. <laughs> and I don't know very many other people who have read it. And he's but, a Russian literature. And I'm yeah. a Russian literature guy, and uh, I studied Russian literature in Moscow. And I will say. Everyone I talked to in, in Russia, Master and Margarita was right. their favorite book. And that's missing from this list. Well, and it's American read, not Russian I know, read. but but I know so many. We're talking about cult books. Yeah. And Master and Margarita is one of those books that among my American literary friends, it's my, my friend. I have a friend who's from Austin, but now lives in The Hague in the Netherlands. But she brings that book up almost every time I talk to her. It's like her Bible, you know. That's how people were in, in Russia. You'd go in and talk to the cook in the kitchen. Everyone over in Russia reads Pushkin and Dostoevsky and Gogol and all those guys. But they talk about Master Margarita in these hallowed terms. And there are people over here like that, too. I've read that book twice, and it's it's a revelation, you know. It's a strange list. I'm not saying Master Margarita is one of the hundred most beloved books in America, but among certain sectors— yeah, I would say that it's it's a book that makes the rounds uh, in undergraduate years at college. I think for sure. I you know I wonder how much we're almost are we past the canon war at, at this point? Mm-hmm. I don't know, but you could almost argue that the canon was a kind of occult literature for particular kind of uh, or literature professors, right? It was, right. It was their it was their cults like Tristram Shandy and Ulysses and Finnegan's mm-hmm. Wake and things like that that right. aren't picked up by ordinary readers and are basically, I mean, Finnegan's Wake would be basically, it is basically impenetrable. It is. If if you guys, listeners, haven't read or aren't familiar with Finnegan's Wake, um, James Joyce wrote four novels, essentially, and as they progressed, they got more and more impenetrable until he reached Finnegan's Wake, which took him like 18 years to write, and he wrote every day, and it's basically gibberish, <laughs> but gibberish where every syllable has a meaning. It's the most well-thought-out gibberish in history. But you you made a good point. Y- yesterday, you and I were chatting, Chris, and um, you said that you thought that modernism itself was an entire movement 
that could be defined as a cult in some sense. Right, because when I, I mentioned earlier that there's a way of looking at the books and that could be considered cult and that's the form of them potentially. It's kind of a rogue uh, literary expression in some sense or, or the content, the outsider, the marginalized person. And uh, when you talk about form, modernism was in particular a way of, of uh, experimenting with form. Of course, it moved in metafiction, books that are aware of themselves as being fiction. Which is more what I would say postmodernism. Right. And that came along in the, like, in the late 50s, early 60s. But as far as modernism, the, the major works, I would say Virginia Woolf, you know, Ulysses, The Wasteland, these are books and works that are associated with being incredibly difficult to read. Sound Um, into fury. Right. Although Hemingway was a modernist, too. For people who don't know what, like that, where that line is drawn, where modernism comes, would you exp- explain that? Okay, that's a, <laughs> it's a, I know it's a lecture. No, no, that's six a, in itself. Okay, but. in in one brief paragraph, explain modernism. Modernism is both a literary movement and we're talking modernism with a capital M here. Right. It's not your, uh, you know, contemporary furniture. Although there was, was modernist, uh, <laughs> modernist furniture. Modernism was a, a literary movement that started around uh, the early part of the. The 20th century and lasted perhaps even today. It's identified by experiments and form, often multiple shifts in point of view, fractured narrative to a certain extent. Stream of consciousness. Stream of consciousness is a, is a good example. That's, that would uh, Joyce and Virginia Woolf are particularly known for that. The whole, the whole idea was to tear down the old forms of the 19th century that and the old narrative forms. Think of modernist architecture. So up until around World War One, the Beaux-Arts form of architecture was the most popular, which is this like Greek revivalist, these old columns. And it was like all this stuff from the old world. This is the birth really of what might be called like intersectionalism or the world that we live in now, even though it was like spearheaded by mostly white dudes. But it was people going, you know what? All of these old forms, why are we letting those hang around? Especially the Americans were like all these old forms from Europe. Why are are we letting these hang around and, and dictate who we are as artists? And so they tried to tear the whole thing away and start from scratch and create a new form of narrative by trying to portray the way people really thought and the way they really talked. So Ulysses takes place in one day and follows this guy Leopold Bloom around Dublin and and it really looks inside his mind and the minds of the other Dubliners and, and tries to understand how they interact. And it's a, another example that's not literary is, is painting. Picasso would be, best cubism would be an example where there's, it's still figurative. There's still a human figure there, but it's phased in different places, you know, multiple noses, as people like to say, or something like that, because mm-hmm. it's looking around and it's simultaneous. And um, artists, literary, plastic artists were trying to capture those kinds of moments in a single instance. So why one day in Dublin would uh, be a good example. So from the list, what? so let's choose one that's modernist and one that is before that so they could maybe see that distinction. Hmm. Let me look. Hemingway was a modernist in, in the sense that I think Hemingway is the most influential American author of the 20th century. 
American authors all started writing differently after Hemingway. And that simplified sentence is, a, in its way, a form of modernism. If you look at a 19th century novel, say War and Peace, although that's Russian, but you think of Dickens, you know, these like long, intricate sentences, although modernism is kind of known for that too, but Henry James, God, oh, who's like the proto-modernist, I'm rambling. But anyway, <laughs> what I'm saying is Hemingway, you can see a real shift there from Hemingway to, you know, Dostoevsky is on here, trying to find an American um, from the 19th century. And it, oh, Moby Dick, you know, although, again, <laughs> Moby Dick is often called the first modernist American novel. There's one chapter in Moby Dick. It's almost like a play where you're looking into the minds of all the people on the Pequod. And uh, that's my favorite book, by the way. I know it's a what? shocker. I know. I know. <laughs> I've never brought that up before. We actually had other people that were like, why is this on the list? It's so boring. Oh it's such Moby a Dick. snooze. Moby Dick, in my mind, is the greatest masterpiece since Shakespeare. Will but. you please, both of you, explain why? Why is this? Oh, it's cult, correct? Would I you think say so. it's cult? I mean, yes. Because yeah. on the PBS documentary, I don't know if you guys have seen it, there is a woman who was on the high seas for years and years and years, and that's her favorite book. It mm. makes sense why she likes Moby Dick. <laughs> the, but, the cult would be people who like Moby Dick. That would be the <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what is that? Why? At one point, I wanted, I thought it would be really cool to get a, a tattoo of these old woodcuts that uh, uh, this guy whose name escapes me used to do of, of Moby Dick back in the 1920s. And then I started to see other people, I lived in New York at the time, with that exact tattoo, and then I knew I was a member of a cult, and that's all right. <laughs> you know, I have come to grips with the fact that a lot of the books I love were written and are about white males, but they're about outsider white males, you know, Catcher in the Rye. As a raging liberal, I've had to come to terms with, like, (laughs) why do I not just read and talk about Beloved all the time, which I love that book. That's a great book. But (laughs) Moby Dick, all these white dudes on a boat. There's something I think that like my ancient self gets really into. But but as an English major, you know, there's a reason we all love Hamlet as English majors, because you can, uh, what we say in uh, unpack, you can unpack that play forever. You will never stop. There's always another layer underneath. It's incredible. Moby Dick is that way. My friend Bonnie McDonald, who's an English professor at WT, she used to say, you know, all these philosophical boulders crashing around in that book. It's the sea, in a sense, is a, in that book is a metaphor for human consciousness. And there's this thing under there, and it's lurking. And Ahab wants to kill it because then he thinks he'll have peace. And who hasn't experienced that in some way, you know? Why, why do you think? I think with everything from the the manageable Bartleby the Scrivener to Mardi or something mm-hmm. like that, I think the reason as American Americanist we love Moby Dick is because it speaks to the rise of America and what an American is or is supposed to be and yeah. really complicates it even that, well, 100 years on, basically. Mm-hmm. We should also say it's a really funny book, which no one ever talks about. Melville, in a modern kind of way, like there's a chapter where there's a this old sea captain gives a sermon, and he, he's in this like lectern that's shaped like the ship's prow or whatever, and he's like he's giving this, and the, all the whole crowd in the church is filled with these old sea guys, and they're like, ah, you know, and it's the funniest, <laughs> and all the all the walls have these paintings of dead sea people, and it's like the most, it's hilarious, right? So there's that, and then there's just the like epic Old Testament language, this for the same reason that we love Cormac McCarthy today, where it's like this is next level. You know, the the prose is incredible. Right. Blood Meridian is yeah. sort of Moby Dick out west. 
There's a through line from, I would say, from Melville to Faulkner to Cormac McCarthy. That's the other strain from the Hemingway strain. You know, there's the ornate strain, and then there's the sort of simplified strain, which, you know, I would say Salinger and those guys are, are on. Thank you for explaining that. Because <laughs> I, I have wanted to know. I've tried. I can't. I don't know. Why I can't get through it. But maybe now that I have your perspective, I, I will give Moby Dick another chance. I mean, the way to read Moby Dick, it has one million short chapters. So you read one a day. <laughs> there is some really boring stuff in there. I am coming out as a boring book lover. I love boring books. Boring stuff in modern society gets a bad rap. A lot of the best stuff in the world is boring. <laughs> what? <laughs> No, hear me out. I'm not joking. Like uh, Murakami, the 1Q84, if you look at Goodreads, I always go by Goodreads comments to see if people are saying it's really boring. That what they say about 1Q84 is that if you want to know a lot of recipes. You're right. Um, yeah. and, and then I know that I'm probably going to like it. Yeah. It's going to be if you want to know a lot of 19th century cetology, read Moby Dick. If you want to know the innards of a whale, that's your book. You know, <laughs> there was a movie based on a book from uh, three years ago, I think, and it was called Under the Skin. It had ScarJo in it. <laughs> and I saw it in Manhattan, and I was one of only three or four people in the theater. It was an incredibly slow movie. And when I walked out, I was... I was destroyed. I was wrecked. It's the best movie I saw that year. I walked around the city after that, just sort of like in a daze. And a, a Marvel movie couldn't do that. It's like wham, bam. But you have to be locked into it. It's this meditative kind of form. It's something that we've forgotten these days. But there is a, something that is patiently told and isn't trying to slap you in the face that you can really start to fall into and become a part of because the thing is sort of hovering there waiting for you rather than trying to attack you all the time. And we live in an attacking society, you know, and, and we always want this thing, you know, we want, you know, plot turns on every page and, and that's all well and good and James Patterson and fine, but... Uh, but you know what I mean? But at the same time, there's something to be said for just the sort of quietness. Moby Dick has a plot, and it's a, it's a ripping yarn. You just have to wade through some pretty slow chapters to get to the really exciting stuff. And, and there's something to be said for reading a lot at one, point, at one time. Yeah, it, it kind of goes. It's not. It's not exactly boring, but it's, it's meditative. You, if you read a couple of hundred pages at a sitting, which you know takes you a while, you really kind of enter that place, uh, the narrative of the book, and the walls of the narrative sort of form around you, and it's a different experience than than hustling through things and having right. a lot of action. And I think that's why I love Frankenstein. Um, which love is Frankenstein. and wh why do you love Frankenstein, Hillary? Because it's tragic. Yeah, it makes my heart hurt. And why does it make your heart hurt? Because I feel for the monster. Right. And yeah. why do you feel for the monster? Because he didn't ask to be here, and, and because did of, I. because of that long scene, right, where he <laughs> yes. tells you, and it's mm -hmm. heart wrenching, and it's like that book again is like it's a nineteenth century narrative, and there are parts of it that might be seen as boring. But I think that you probably, those are your favorite parts, right? Yeah. Oh, yes. 
I, you know, ooh. and all he's doing is channeling Rousseau. So you probably do. You pro- Rousseau probably doesn't have the same effect on you, but you know the creature as we, as we want to call him now, yes. not, right. the, not the monster, not the monster. Yes, the creature. <laughs> um, sorry. Yes, it's there's there's a lot of detail Adam. in that book. That's not. Yeah. Um, it's not a particularly fast book. No. no, not at all. And I read it in high school, so it was it had that element to it, where it's like someone's forcing me to read this, but it, it really wasn't. I I loved it, and it got me right in the heart. I just, yeah, I just, man. I feel so. It's incredible. Yes. It's a great book, yes. and also it's written by a badass chick, and yeah. and that is something. You know, I mean, that makes it like so much cooler. Yeah. In so many ways, to me, than if it was written by Percy Shelley. Yeah. And this goes back to cult in that I enjoyed Frankenstein immensely because my teacher gave us like the backstory of Mary Shelley and like Mm -hmm. what her life was like and the whole publishing aspect of, you know, modern Prometheus or whatever and like how it came about. And I think that cult readers or people who like books like that are fascinated by the backstory and can enjoy it more for that reason. Or at least that's how I enjoyed the book. Yeah. No, I think that's true. Would you like to talk about books that are missing from the list? What what direction do you think you're feeling right now? Do you want to start? What what well, surprised you that wasn't on this list? Um, let's see. Keeping in mind that this list is what? What is this list? Tell us, Hillary. Well, they had, it, it all has to do, there's like a survey done. Those books were pared down by a panel of 13. I think they made some very conscious efforts to include, you know, black authors, um, queer authors, mm-hmm. ones that are more populist. And I realize why you can't just open it up to the internet because then every <laughs> it would be Ayn Rand's all of Ayn Rand's books right. and then all of Ayn Rand's other books. And the, the limitations <laughs> for it were it had to be a work of fiction. The author could not be repeated more than once. Yeah. So some of the ones, you know, the one that keeps coming up is the Vonnegut book where they're like, why did Sirens they? Sirens of Titans. Right. Yeah. Such Should a, be Slaughterhouse-Five probably. Yeah. yeah. Um, my son, again, who's sitting in the room, is currently reading Slaughterhouse-Five. And uh, that's the one. I mean, possibly Cat's Cradle, but not not Sirens of Titans. Such a weird choice. Yeah. Um, so I don't know yet why they chose that book, mm-hmm. but um, or why they chose others. I mean, Agatha Christie's another one where why why and then there were none. But yeah, because um, I would choose like Roger Ackroyd or something yeah, like that. Where yeah. I don't know. Um, but th- that's kind of the the way that they did it. So talk about talk about books that you feel are like glaring omissions, cult wise and personally. I think a, a clear cult author and book, uh, book in particular, Fight Club, um, probably is something that should uh, be on there. Cormac McCarthy, I think, probably is there. Is he on here at all? Is it? No. Is the road not no. on there? The road. No, the, you would, is the road not on there? The road is not on there. Neither is on the road. You would think that like, would I know. what? You would be there, but we'll uh, interestingly, McCarthy was actually a kind of cult author before all the Pretty Horses came out, and purely American. I think there are things that I think I see it a lot from sort of the uh, the ivory tower aspect. I have uh, Farina's been down so long; it looks like up to me mm-hmm. on my list. Uh, I put Murakami, even though he's not yeah. American. Uh, uh, because uh, he's having good run in the in the states for quite a while now, 
I had Master and Margarita on there. And then I had my women's list that I mentioned earlier. I put Flannery O'Connor's Wise Blood on there because as a, yeah. as a Flannery O'Connor piece itself, it, it uh, is really interesting. And it came to me in the same way that Master and Margarita came to yeah. me. And A Canical for Leibowitz, uh, which mm-hmm. is uh, another one that uh, kind of sci-fi kind of thing. And Kathy Acker, Blood and Guts in High School. And then a lot of things you can connect up with what are being streamed in a series on TV. Uh, Handmaid's Tale, Picnic, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Picnic, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Rock. Fahrenheit 451, mm-hmm. things like that are being picked up and made into television series and uh, aren't on there, which is kind of surprising. When I think of cult books, I kind of think of books that people use to define their personality in some sense. So it's not about the story anymore. It's not about being entertained. Often it's some guy in a coffee shop who's trying to let the cover of his book be seen so that girls will think he's cute. You know, like that's what a cult book is in some sense. And Fight Club is that book, right? Polonic, Haruki Murakami. Like you, you talk to people and they're like, have you read Murakami? You know, it's always that guy. 20 years ago, that book was on the road. There was always one guy in every coffee shop who was the Kerouac guy, and there was always the Vonnegut guy. And uh, I have a real technical term for that. I call it the smarty pants factor. Right, yeah. Oh, I was thinking hipster. But. Yeah, hipster. There was always the Bukowski guy, <laughs> and there's no Bukowski on here, but there was always, and maybe it's, because it's mostly like Ham on Rise, it's mostly poetry, though he wrote novels, but Henry Miller is another one, you know, where it's like, you know, you talk to the Vonnegut guy, and then you try to talk to them about other books, and he will always bring the conversation back to Vonnegut because he's never <laughs> managed to break the Vonnegut wall. You know, he's like, I've only, I really, but he'll never say that. You know, he's like, you know, so Vonnegut does that same thing. You know, it's like, it's like you are defining yourself by Kurt Vonnegut. And that's, I saw Kurt Vonnegut speak when I was young, at the, uh, when I was like 17 at the University of Texas. He was incredibly magnetic and his books are incredibly magnetic and he's charming and funny. My point is like, those are those books. And there are some of those like Bukowski, On the Road, The Stranger is another one. There was always that kid growing up, you know, in high school, the one who smoked the skinny cigarettes and like, uh, <laughs> and was incredibly proud of it. I think I might've been this kid. Um, <laughs> He was incredibly proud of himself for having read The Stranger, you know, because it was like French and he was from Northern Africa and it was about murder and whatever, you know. For some reason, most of these guys are white males, the guy in the coffee shop, you know. But if there is a female version of that, I think the bell jar is it. Um, And that's not on the list. The Fountainhead, although they only picked one by every author, right? So Atlas Shrugged is on there. That's for the young Republican in the coffee shop. That guy... (laughs) There's that guy's always hanging around, you know, and um, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is another one of those books. Its moment may have passed again. The sort of white guys, white guy out on the road doing drugs, you know, like that's what that book is. (laughs) Right. And uh, and it's fun to read, but it's not on the list. It surprised me. The Magus at one point by John Fowles was one of those books, I think mostly like in the 1970s and early 80s. It's one of my favorite books. It's pretty pretentious, but man, it's insanely fun to read. It's so cool. He likes um, pretentious and boring books. He's it, admitting that. I wouldn't say that. The Magus, maybe. <laughs> I, my my boring meter is so far off, it's hard for me to tell what's boring anymore. Because Bologna's another good international one. That's true. There. Uh, yeah. 2666 and right. Savage Detectives, right. I think. 
Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is another one of those books, especially in the 1970s. There was a whole generation of kind of dudes who, this is a book about a father and his son on a motorcycle trip, but it's a book of philosophy. And when I read it when I was 18, it made me feel really cool to be reading it. And that's what I think cult books do in the same way that Harry Potter made a whole generation of 14-year-olds feel really cool to be reading it because they felt like, oh, man, maybe I'm a wizard or whatever. <laughs> when I was working at the Strand Bookstore in New York, everyone there was obsessed with Jesus's Son by Dennis Johnson. Dennis Johnson died, I think, last year. But that was one of those books that among a certain hipster American Brooklyn person, Jesus's Son, this book of short stories, like really defined a sort of turn of the millennium generation. American Psycho, Howl, again, poetry, The Clockwork Orange, again, marauding straight white dudes, you know, like, that's the theme, I think, like, that <laughs> defines so many of these books, but man, what a great book. And then House of Leaves, there's just, there's always been this sort of peripheral margin of society that's really into this horror novel called House of Leaves, which I've tried to read twice, and speaking of boring, good Lord, I couldn't get through it. <laughs> But I don't like footnotes. I don't like footnotes in a novel. This is why I can't handle David Foster Wallace. Like, it's a bridge too far for me, man, you know? But uh, in yeah, David Foster Wallace. Infinite would definitely be possible on list in any pension, uh, I think. Yeah, I, uh, agreed. Yeah. I mean, pension should probably be on the list in some way. Crying a lot, 49, I would There's, think. And you mentioned uh, Infinite Jest, Go to any grad school, you will find some insufferable, you know, like grad student who is carrying infinite jest around like it's his Bible, you know. There are also just, I should say, there are a lot of American authors who are beloved, who are, Willa Cather is not on this list, you know. Should it be limited to Americans? No, I'm not saying, but but this is, if this is a, a list of the most beloved books in America, like... My Antonia could certainly take the place of War and Peace, you know. Yeah. I liked a separate piece when I was in high school, but I've never really met anyone who's like, I love a separate piece or is even still talking about it after ninth grade. But I liked it, you know, but there's some weird choices on here. There's so much great American literature. Hawthorne isn't on here. Poe isn't on here. You know, like, you know, like Doña Barbara. I don't know people who even talk about Doña Barbara, mm. but I know people who talk about Poe. That's you know? true. And uh, and H.P. Lovecraft, another oh, yeah. cult. I, that's one omission. Despite the racism. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and the use of the word cyclopean on four times on every page. <laughs> right. And then there's graphic novels that uh, certainly have a uh, yeah. have the cult side, like Tank Girl and The Crow and, and The Watchmen. Yes. Yeah, we, we had a, a podcast on that. So uh, oh, on graphic, like okay, things cool. left off the list, the most obvious one was graphic novels. Mouse. Which, Mouse, you know. yes. Incredible. On a more positive note, which we <laughs> we ask all of our podcast guests, if you could have one win, which one do you think should, or which one do you think will? Hmm. I'm gonna oh. I'm gonna say two. I'm gonna say the one that I would want to win, which is Moby Dick, and then um, because it's the best <laughs> book, as we have already decided amongst ourselves. Yes. And then I'll say I haven't thought about this. 
but I'll say what I th- wish would win as far as like I have no I have no expectations that the majority of Americans would love Moby Dick the most. Like I just don't I'm not blind and stupid, but um, <laughs> I would I would like to see something like Lonesome Dove win, which is just the most exciting book I've ever read. Like the the bed, biggest page turner. It's a thousand pages long. It feels like it's 50 pages long. You're just flying through that thing. I stayed up. I was 18, I think, and I stayed up from midnight until 1 p.m. the next day because I could not stop reading. Wow. Um, and it's about America. It's about this part of the country in some sense. Charles Goodnight is in it. And it's just incredibly... It's a cre- an incredibly fun book to read, and I think would it, it would be something that I would really be happy to see win. What about you? I, th- I think Lonesome Dove is a great choice. Because I, I have a really um, personal attachment to it because I read it on a train uh, going through Chile and read it just like it was just – plowed through it. I was I was traveling with someone and we were sharing it. It was a book we'd been in South America for months and it was the first English that we'd looked at for a while and we were passing it back and forth and just gobbling it up. And I and I just it just makes a lot of sense. It's uh, particularly for American read. It does in the same way that Moby Dick does. Gosh, I mean To Kill a Mockingbird, which my daughter's yeah. reading right now, is is certainly a strong contender, I think. I'm looking just mainly at the Americans because there's, you know, 100 Years Solitude, great book, but, you know, it's... You don't uh, want a non-American book to win the great American read, right. you know? <laughs> I think... We've well, produced enough good books around here. We don't have to outsource this, you know? <laughs> I think Harry Potter has a good chance for I, th- I bet, And that'd be... That'd, that would make sense, you know? And I will say that among those kinds of books, the super popular culty ones, Harry Potter is the one that's going to stick around because it's well written and the story has a lot of depth to it. I mean, I'm not trying to take down Twilight or Fifty Shades of Grey. Those have their place and they're fun, but I feel like they're genre exercises that exploded way beyond anybody's expectations. And they're going to deflate back to their sort of like normal place in the canon or whatever you would call it by over time because they're just not they're not that well written there's not that much going on they're just like fun to read and that's all well and good i'm not surprised they're on this list and i take no issue with that i would say they're probably among the hundred most beloved books in america (laughs) but in 20 or 30 years you know like the thorn birds isn't on here but it would have been in 1978 you know yeah and gatsby of course yeah Uh, i mean just if if for the last paragraph it just itself it's uh, to my discredit that I can't just spout it out right yeah. now. It's in there, but it's just yeah. um, it's a beautiful piece of writing. I, would, I think that's a really good point because I would say that Gatsby is the ultimate marriage of crime novels, genre exercise in some sense. It's essentially just a crime novel. It's really short. It's not boring at all. It's like 180 pages. You can read it in a few hours. But some of the greatest prose ever put to paper on this continent. I mean, it's just breathtaking so th- that's a good marriage of genre and and, and literary literary i would say great choices well thank you guys so much for your wealth of knowledge that was very enlightening and awesome and don't forget to go vote for your favorite book at pbs.org slash great american read and you can also follow all of the local events surrounding the great american read on Well, first of all, Check Me Out has its own Facebook page. And then also on Panhandle PBS's Facebook page and website, panhandlepbs.org.
O-R-G. Thank you. Thank you for listening, book lovers. And remember to click subscribe wherever you may be listening to this podcast. Special thanks goes to the Mag7 for providing us with music, to Scotty Vanderford, Cullen Lutz, and Stevie Brashears for designing us such a cool logo. We encourage you to vote now at panhandlepbs.org slash greatamericanread for your favorite book on the list. See you next time. Mm-hmm.